0: There isn't yet a children's right to clean air. There's quite a lot of talk about it, but there, it's not in the statute books yet.
1: I'm sitting here with Andrew and Kayla from Breathe London. Um, Kayla, can you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and what you're doing with Breathe London, please? And then over to you, Andrew, afterwards.
2: Sure, yes. Hi, my name is Kayla Schulte. I'm a social environmental researcher, and I study how emerging tools and technologies like air sensors, apps, or web platforms are transforming perceptions, experiences, and behaviors around air pollution. Uh, I'm currently working on my Ph.D. at the University of Oxford at the Lieberkuhn Centre for Demographic Science.
0: Hi, Josh. um, I'm Andrew. I'm a senior air quality analyst at um, Imperial uh, College, Um, working on the Breathe London project. I've been working in air pollution for 15 years. most most of that running the London Air Quality Network and now the Breed London Network. I think of myself uh, as a sort of air pollution technologist. I enjoy and strive to use digital technologies to
1: improve air quality communication. Awesome. Great. Thank you, guys. So um, I don't know who wants to go first, but please tell us a little bit more about Breed London, um, its journey to date and what it's looking to do.
0: Yeah, I'll kick uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, off okay, for that. Um, this is the second phase of Breed London, actually. Um, there was a pilot phase which ran um, 2017, 2018. The aims of that pilot phase are quite different to the aims of this phase. It was still using small sensors, these sort of newer generation of, of uh, smaller, cheaper air pollution sensors, but it was looking at how they could be used in combination with reference uh, sensors to uh, build up a, a a pollution sensing network in it perhaps in the city that, that, that didn't have as 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 established a network as we have in London. This second phase is much more focused on community involvement. So there's a big a big part of it is uh trying to involve uh, communities themselves in, in in air quality monitoring. We've got this has a few partners so the the mayor is is a partner um and they have over 100 sensors that are at Schools and hospitals. We have another a big partner in the in the network who's Bloomberg Philanthropies. They are funding a PhD student uh, to look at the effect of uh, giving. Smaller sensors to to communities, um, and also funding uh, sixty sensors to give to communities over the next three years, um, and that's a big big part of my job is running that program. So it's 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 really exciting. We are we started in January, um, so we're just under under a year in. Um, we've got two hundred eighty sensors out um, already, but I think you know aside from the numbers, really the value is going to be understanding. How communities are using using the data and working with with communities to use the data, and that's that's a part of what Kayla's is going to be working on is, is is going going out to to communities and, and institutions as well, and, and understanding how 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 these um, people can use this data because it's quite a new it's quite a new thing it's quite a new area to to give uh, air pollution sensors directly
1: to to communities. That's awesome. Um, Thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, Kayla, can you speak a little bit more about the outcome with communities? I know this stems from a lot of your background and the work that you've done historically on knowledge exchange, communication, et cetera. So could you talk a little bit about how you see the outcomes of this phase of Breathe London developing, please?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, this is a really exciting pioneering project. It's an opportunity uh, to Uh, have communities, um, individuals from different communities come together and be involved in the process of knowledge production about air pollution in a way that hasn't really been possible historically. Historically, we rely on these um, large stationary machines to generate our air pollution data. And then someone takes that and does something with it in government. Uh, Whereas now we we have these... um, more mobile um, modular uh, units that can give us some reasonable insight into uh, what air pollution conditions are like in the places that we, we live and move and play and work. Um, so, you know, one of the big goals of this project um, and, you know, my goal is to help facilitate community driven air pollution data and knowledge production that can illuminate uh, important areas to different communities for pollution mitigation activities, and ultimately protect human and environmental health. Um, and also another another aspect would be to demystify air pollution data. Uh, the concept of air pollution can be very anxiety provoking. Uh, there, you know, there is no reason really to. I mean, not to. Not to tell anybody how to think, but you know, there shouldn't, there shouldn't be a lot of fear around air pollution data. I think we we can come together and have conversations about what air pollution data is, what it isn't, um, and you know, really look to it as a tool and an opportunity to uh transform the way that we're understanding air pollution in our communities. It doesn't have to be this this foreign um. Fear-provoking uh, thing, you know.
1: Both of you work in the world of science and sort of data comms for for a want of. Brutalizing the the uh, a lot of what you do, and there's arguably two sides to this. So you've got one which is communicating information, such as what is air pollution, because you know uh, NO two is a, a chemical compound, but you've got um, then recordings of PM two point five, PM one, PM ten, which are to do with the size of the chemicals and particles that are in the area, and you know when you look at things like NO two or NOx. I- Uh, you're looking very much at the focus of vehicle emissions. Whereas when you start to look at PM1 and PM2.5, you're also looking at factors such as what happens when uh, uh, train lines, as the wheels go over the steel, the dust that is emitted, and the same with brake pads from vehicles. So you're looking at a a broader picture of the composition in the air. So there's also a lot of clarity about how how we communicate air pollution. So first we've got we're looking at communicating information as part of this general world of uh, science and data comms, but also listening to feedback and kind of going beyond what the data says and understanding that lived experience. So you know both require empathy, equity, and humility to have an impact. And it, it was said that many people don't need to be lectured about the facts and the figures. They, they instinctively know a lot. And that's what we've been finding with a lot of engagement that we've had with communities. They know what's going on. And a member of the Urban Health Council, uh, Megali Thompson, who, when she interviewed uh, a range of parents and children in Lewisham for her, um, for her master's thesis through the London School of Economics and working with Great Ormond Street Hospital, people were, she was asking about air pollution, but they were talking about noise pollution a lot of the time. Like People are picking up on the sensorial experience of their places really instinctively. So you know, people are often wanting to know that change can happen from these kind of tools, uh, on things around quantification, that their knowledges are going to be shared and respected. So um, I don't know who wants to pick this up first. Um, uh, maybe Kayla will stick with you and then Andrew. But where do you see the role of digital tools and this kind of communication method going over the next five years.
2: I'm so happy you just brought up all the points that you brought up. And just to kind of echo your point about not just spewing facts at people, you're absolutely correct. Um, and it's been shown throughout the literature and in practice that um, this knowledge or information deficit model, whereby more facts are forced at people, is not helpful. It's it's not the way um, to encourage um foundational rooted um behavior and culture transformations you know it needs to be integrated it needs to come from the very individuals in which these environmental challenges are um are, are an issue um, and to your point about um how digital tools can kind of align with that and, and where i hope to see them um go in the next five years uh, you know this might be a little bit of a pipe dream um but touching on your point about uh individuals bringing up uh sound and noise pollution you know i i hope to see digital tools uh, and knowledge exchange in the environmental arena expanding to consider more than just the sense of sense of sight um i think we're a very visual culture we we privilege visual information. Um, And when we do that, we we lose out on hundreds and thousands of years of evolutionary wisdom and insight to be gained from our other senses. So, you know, to your point about this community identifying sound as as a concern that speaks to the absence or failure of our digital tools to account for um, the complexity um, and fullness of a lived experience of the environment. So, um, I think, you know, in the vein of of creative coding, um, engineering, et cetera, that um, digital tools and technologies can um, can and should evolve to address more than just uh, the sense of sight, uh, particularly in the air pollution arena. You know, to to kind of experiment with that.
1: That's great. Um, thank you for that, uh, Andrew. How do you see Things evolving. That's sort of same question over the next sort of five years. Yeah. Um, it,
0: if I think about the trajectory of air quality sensing, monitoring, whether it's um, over the last few years, and 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 sort of looking, you know, presuming that that's going to be the trajectory that we're on for the next five years. It is basically sort of increasing personalization. So we're moving from, you know, as we've said, these big expensive uh, air quality stations, the, the types that I, I've run for for years, um, moving now towards personal sensors. So sensors that people can wear, smaller sensors that, you know, yeah, people can can clip on onto their bag. There's a whole bunch of those that are out now. Um, these be London sensors, which are you can't clip them onto yourself, but you can put them on your street. You can put them in your playground. You can put them in your, in your, in your, in your garden. Or, you know. Um, so the more personalised there, I've been working on apps which uh, can give you a more personalised view of what your exposure was for the day. So we're we're moving towards increased personalization, I think, but I think the challenge in the air quality community is going to be. Trying to try to sort of provide context for that for 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 individuals, um, because the the air quality information the the sort of get the, the the guidance and and the and the advice that we have at the moment is for sort of population level really. Um, and you know, to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, you know, there's a whole range of of, of people with different. No, I mean not not just with different physical conditions, but different um, you know me- mental conditions as well. That may be more or less susceptible to to pollution. That are not really sort of currently catered for in in the in the current advice. And as we move towards this increased personalisation, there's going to be a requirement to be able to say to people you know, this is what this means for you. I mean, I think the hope with the, with the London uh, network is, you know, to, again, to go back to something that you raised earlier that, you know, we've had this sort of regulatory regime for a long time, which is very, you know, sort of numbers driven. One of the things I really hope that we are able to do with this network is, is if we put a sensor in front of a, in front of a school where lots of, you know, for example, a front of a school where lots of people are arriving in the morning and idling, for example. Now that, to just say, for the sake of argument, that the levels of idling are below the stand, are below the sort of daily standard or the hourly standard, and and would never trigger sort of an an a, an something that, you know an intervention from a local authority or a city or something because it's sort of low below. But yet, yet that is still affecting people. You know that is still affecting the children, it's still affecting the parents, it's still affecting the people. It's good to do something about that. I hope that we can, with the Breathe London Network, with these smaller sensors, get to a point where people are able to to take action to improve their environment of, out with of with the sort of very you know rigid rigid structure that we've had had previously, um, to give people more more ownership and, and uh, autonomy over over their environment.
2: Yeah, just to, to echo Andrew's point, there is value in materializing the intangible. Um, while for some air pollution is certainly not intangible, it's a very real felt experience. For others, it isn't. Um we're not uh we're not acutely aware of when we're confronted with air pollution um throughout our daily lives. So uh Breathe London and and, uh, other projects like it um, are a valuable exercise in in materialising the intangible.
1: So I think you've jumped ahead to a question I wanted to ask, which was kind of matching up uh, the more lived experience or the sort of the intersectionality that is the the experience of urban environments. Um, And it's it's something we've actually got coming out in our latest report from the Urban Health Council, which talks about the disparities between numerical recordings of quantities of pollutants and the lived experience of pollutants and stressors. And many people have different tolerance thresholds before impacts become evident in the short term, such as those who are immunocompromised or more susceptible due to working or living conditions. So, you know, do you have perspectives on how we start to match the live experience data which is what a lot of this work and i know both your work independent of breed london has been around how do we communicate with people um but how do we start to match the quantification values the sort of numerical recordings um with the more experiential data to build more appropriate policies because i think you know something you've talked about authorities are some can be good and some can be straight out gaslighting citizens saying their experience doesn't match the data. And maybe it's historic data. Maybe as you've said before, it's about population averages and, you know, so so something kind of needs to change. Something is wrong on the citizen side. So do you see, uh, or do you have a, a vision in how we start to match and respect the more lived experience data with sort of numerical and, Study-based uh, data, so we can actually build more equity in the kind of the knowledge exchange space. And as we move towards I- identifying how to adapt policy rather than change individual behavior,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's a key yeah. one. There. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I feel that participatory co-design research is really the way forward here to have. Individuals, communities who are directly affected um, by environmental conditions, um, urban lived conditions, just lived conditions in general. You know, I don't want to I don't want to pigeonhole this to environmental challenges. I think this this methodology can apply to a whole host of um, uh, lived civic experience. But I think it's fundamental to involve uh, the individuals to which these policies are going to um, affect and impact most directly in those initial stages of goal setting and objective setting for for research, especially beyond, you know, really emphasizing participatory coordination co-designed research as the way forward, taking the time and dedicating the resources to this type of research. It's different. This means transitioning away from um, how we've done environmental knowledge production historically. This means bringing in more resources um, and creating more spaces where um, members of communities and Environmental researchers, social scientists can kind of come together uh, and and have conversations about um, goals for protecting the environments and spaces where we live. And to your point about um, how to potentially guide this towards more effective policymaking. Perhaps I'm a bit cynical, but I still see policymaking as being strongly underpinned by quantitative evidence and data. And I mean, well, that's just kind of the nature of what we described um, with respect to air pollution uh, governance. Uh, I really see the marrying of the qualitative and the quantitative as a way forward here so that... The hierarchy between qualitative and quantitative is, is dismantled and quantitative data can't be used to gaslight individuals to invalidate their experience because the qualitative data is is held at um the same the same scale. Um and I think I'm hopeful that Breathe London um in, in certain respects will be able to, to achieve that.
0: I was very, very keen. Um, when I was designing the the website, that community stories, as as it's called, had equal prominence on the homepage with the traditional air quality map, which all closing sites have. So, yeah, so I, I want, you know, I was very conscious of that right from the start, that people's experience and community stories, had, I wanted to have basically equal weighting with, with the data. I hope that the stories that we we collect on on, on Breathe London and present on Breathe London both gives the communities a chance to connect with each other and gives authorities, um, you know, city and, and local authorities a chance to understand firsthand, you know, understand what 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 communities are are in. Experiencing across London, um, you know, it's going to it's going to take time, but it, 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 we have an opportunity there to to bring together both both aspects for 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 people.
1: With this level of citizen engagement, and it's not that a citizen is any lesser; they are still an expert of their experience. They're an expert of their local area more than anyone swooping in and. And dropping down, and all too often, historically, citizens have become, for want of a better phrase, lab rats in someone's research study or someone's evaluation study. Of well, just give us this information, we'll we'll work it out. Whereas, I think part of what you know, both of you have talked about, and I think what I want to ask is, how do we kind of safeguard this citizen data? Do we need a citizen data trust? to ensure you know their equity the representation but also to create not everything has to be centralized but to create a force that is as powerful as any other epidemiological study or can be as respected as the you know the office of national statistics their indices of multiple deprivation which is a metric used to evaluate environments, but it often misses out the different experiential elements. So I guess as, as two people at um, different different but very shared ends of the, um, in particular about the air pollution monitoring and engagement, do you foresee, and I understand you represent organisations, so I don't know how much you can politically speak, but do you see a, an inevitability or a need for a citizen data trust? Do we actually start to need to evolve that side of the domain so that it is an equitable conversation, so that citizens are represented as as equal and equitable members when authorities, et cetera, are making decisions? They are doing so with the consent and the informed consent through their data about those decisions. So I guess kind of over to you guys on where you feel that question can be answered
0: wow there's a there's a lot in that um <laughs> you 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 raise a really really important and really interesting point um around ownership of data for for a long time through the sort of this traditional air quality monitoring regime that we've had um data has belonged to to local authorities i mean you know anyone can download it and anyone can can use it and, and people do i mean it is public in that sense um but sort of the generation of it is local authorities or or my you know, my group um you know one one of the things that we we hope for the breathe london network which is certainly true is that communities will feel <laughs> we often say we want them to feel a sense of ownership over the data you raise an interesting point as well why shouldn't they actually own that data? It, there shouldn't. It shouldn't be the case that if the project ends, then that data disappears. It should belong to them. Um, and so, if it belongs to them, where should it where should it be stored? If if not on our servers, then then where? This sort of citizen-generated, community-generated data should probably reside on some common some common resource somewhere for anyone to access um and 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 yeah have sort of equal weighting to data generated by by any by anyone else that system doesn't doesn't currently exist but you you raise an excellent you raise an excellent point
2: yeah i mean i i think your your question josh speaks to uh, a broader cultural conversation around um autonomy of, of data generation. Um, I see being involved in, um, the design of exercises that ultimately will produce or generate data being a component of owning the data. Also, you know, the, the practical aspect of having it reside on, um, a server database that you have access to and, and, um, Autonomy over how that's governed. And I think there are many different facets of, of ownership of data. And I would just reiterate my point about, um, you know, kind of at the outset, having citizens, having individuals involved, affected individuals involved in the design of the data collection exercises being a first step towards um, safeguarding citizen data.
1: the air pollution that we find in urban environments is really a hidden outcome of urban planning. It's the regulation of building use, commercial activity, and the type of development they influence, the number of vehicles, machinery, and activity in an area, such as an, uh, an agglomeration of industrial sites that are close, you know, that happen to back onto a canal, but behind that canal are residential. So we see a relationship there forming the urban planning, dictating land use, allowing these things to happen. And I, I think where. A lot of the conversation to date has come around air pollution, as it is with like the climate and energy crisis, where it's always telling you, "Well, make sure that you've got uh, double insulation. Make sure that you know turn down your uh, radiators when you don't need them." There is a, you know, there is a merit, but there is also too much of a focus on getting each of us to do our part. But this really ignores the huge systemic contributions and factors of air pollution uh, that do require us to start identifying better ways of living and governing our land around us. So uh, I, I don't know who wants to start first. Uh, maybe Andrew, I'll pick you and then we can go to Kayla. Um, but, you know, where do you see the needed policy changes, and if there's anything that perhaps you or Breathe London or the London Air Quality Network are identifying, whether it be at the local level, so you're talking about local authorities, the cities, in the case of London, the Greater London Authority, or even someone like the UK national government, are there particular changes that you're seeing that you're wanting to, to have an impact on? And it may not be about the particular value, it may be something related such as the health impact assessments that take place when a large real estate or urban development project takes place, we're actually using air pollution as a different, you know, we're using the quantification or different data at that point to assess. So it can be slightly indirect. But Is there any particular hook or angle that you um, are looking at saying, well, this is the great opportunity for us to change if we can get enough movement and energy, this is the one thing we want to look at either local city or national level?
0: Um, on, on your, on your point about, um, the planning system, um, I, I'm, I, I'm not, not through work, but facing a very, um, I'm at the sharp end of that, um, actually, uh, there's a small industrial estate behind my children's school, my children are in primary school, um, which has been abandoned for many many over 10 years and um ocado um snapped it up and are trying to open a 24 7 distribution center just literally just over the wall from the playground um so we we started a campaign um to 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 try to stop that um we're having to do it through the planning system though um it's the only sort of lever that we have. Um, there isn't yet a children's right to clean air. There's quite a lot of talk about it, um, but there, it's not in the statute books yet. Yeah, so I'm I'm sort of really at the sharp end of of that uh, you know problem that you you describe, where um, decisions can be planning decisions can be made with no involvement of the local community at all. So you know thinking about that and thinking about the possibilities of of, of breathe London, I guess sort of overall what we well there's sort of two 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 sort of analogies that i think of one is sort of there's the potential for for citizen led monitoring to sort of tip the balance in 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 favor of of citizens in 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 decisions about you know we'll, you know gyratory reconfiguration, or traffic light reconfiguration, or where school goes, or you know where new housing goes. There's there's the possibility for for so sort of the balance to be tipped back towards residents in in an area. And then my other sort of analogy that I think of for the for the network is that we get this sort of blossoming of of a thousand flowers of 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 things that we had never even thought of before across the city. Um, New approaches, new ways of thinking about using air, air quality monitoring uh, to to improve the local uh, environment that we you know we'd, we'd never considered, that combined can create a sort of a, a groundswell or a, a grassroots movement. And what I hope from the Bees London Network is that we can start to create this this sort of grassroots network in in London, and then you know potentially in other cities where. Um, the, the 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 sort of top and the bottom can start to work together
1: better than they have done previously. And very last, I understand you're running a program um, promoting the use of uh, the breathe London air monitoring tools uh, for other community groups, and you want people to apply and receive. Do you want to just give a quick uh, thirty seconds on that?
2: Yes. So we've got just under two weeks left for different communities or groups across London to apply for the Breathe London Community Program, uh, for which we have 10 free clarity node sensors that can be installed uh, at a location of your choice. free of cost uh, and managed by the Imperial Environmental Research Group team. So they would be responsible for the installation uh, and help with the data collection and processing. And this is just a really, really exciting opportunity that uh, I haven't come across in in my 10 years of uh, participatory air quality monitoring that that really brings top experts in, um, or top specialists in air quality monitoring, um, to kind of help facilitate um, the the new production of air pollution knowledge. Um, so yeah, we're 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 kind of trying to cast the net as wide as possible and encourage um, different groups to submit an application if they are interested in receiving one of these uh 10 free nodes and there will be other opportunities to apply for this uh for this scheme over the years so this is not this is not the end um but we just want to try and um spread spread the word and and encourage others to spread the word about this opportunity
1: that's great Gela. thank you very much for your time today and we'll speak soon This show and the work of the Urban Health Council wouldn't have been possible without the support of funders and contributors. We'd like to thank the businesses, Lendlease, Matter Architecture, Aseni Projects, MAP, the Human Nature Partnership, TOWN, as well as the National Lottery Community Fund, whose contribution has allowed us to delve deeper into community health and begin creating healing futures. We'd also like to thank the following generous individuals. Nick Tyler, Robert Stark, Carl McFadden, Claire Delmar, Jake Robinson, Matthew Pembry, David Smith, Lucy Stewart, Marquetta Nosilova, Dominic Campbell, Magali Thompson, James Pellet, and those who wish to remain anonymous, who have all become supporters of the independent science being produced at Century Club in the Urban Health Council. If this is your first time listening to the show, please head over to urbanhealthcouncil.com to check out more, and if you can, please consider becoming a supporter. Thanks. Bye.